Come in, come in, and welcome to the Cave of the Eco Chamber. This is a podcast brought to you by the Journalist Events Report, exploring the most important environmental policy in the UK, with me, your host, James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the news that national PM2.5 emission reductions have been thwarted by domestic wood burners. The father and son duo punished for the illegal laundering of peregrine falcons and the EU regulation that the government has in its sights. For our deep dive, we'll be speaking to IEMA's Deputy CEO, Martin Baxter, on EIA's greenwashing, diversity in the environment sector, and more. So harness up, and let's explore this week's Eco Chamber! To help me on my expedition into the cave of big green news this week, I'm joined by the Ends Report's deputy editor Jose Rojo and reporter Shosha Aidi. Last week marked 11 years since the death of Ella Kissy Deborah. She died aged nine after an acute asthma attack in South London in February 2013. In 2020, a landmark coroner's report made Ella the first person in the world to have air pollution cited as a cause of death. So for our first story, we're looking at the good and the bad of the government's latest national stock take on the quality of the air we breathe in the United Kingdom. Jose, what are some of those key findings of this DEF report, which was looking at air pollution levels for the 21-2022 year? Well, let's start with the uh, positive, shall we, James? The good news here is that DEFRA have found what they describe as considerable decreases in particular matter emissions, what's called PM2.5, from sources such as road transport. For context, PM2.5, well, it is some of the most uh, dangerous particulates for human health, and it's all in the name. Uh, it's that 2.5, that is just how absolutely tiny they are, 2.5 micrometers in diameter. 28 times it is smaller than the diameter of a human hair and that is actually what allows them to travel to the deeper parts of our lungs which can then cause things such as tissue damage, lung inflammation and so on. So yeah look the the fact that emissions of something this dangerous are decreasing considerably it can only be good news. Yeah right and and those dangers are what contributed to Ella's death absolutely. Mm. So so at the moment though that does sound very positive Joshua. It does, but unfortunately, um, some of those gains have been offset by the rise in domestic wood burning. So whilst we know that particulate matter emissions in the round fell by a couple of percent, we also know from these stats that the emissions from home wood burners actually increased by 19% during that period, um, which pretty much makes up for all the gains. Right. Okay. So when you look at wood burning specifically then, what sort of controls are in place to, to curb them, I guess? Are there any? Not much, actually. If you look at London, for example, the majority of the capital is classed as a smoke control area, meaning you cannot emit smoke from a chimney unless you are burning what's called smokeless fuels or you're using what is called an exempt appliance. And yet, despite these bans and despite thousands of complaints over smoke pollution, not one fine has ever been issued since 2018. So yeah, we've written a great analysis on this last year as part of an interview with the Deputy Mayor of London for Environment and Energy, Shirley Rodriguez. So if you're an end subscriber, it's definitely one to read. 
But yeah, on the whole, national policy action on wood burning is, seems to be largely absent. And instead, the emphasis you see it being placed on information campaigns to try and push people towards buying dry wood, which should have 20% moisture or less, because that, that is another problem, right? Like wet wood contains more moisture. So if you burn it, there's going to be more smoke created, more harmful particulates released. Right. And before we move on to our next story, I just I thought it, it is important to flag that, you know, we're talking about wood burners here with PM 2.5. They're not the only source of pollution, are they, Shosha, that we need to be concerned about on the rise? No, that's true. There's also the hidden danger of ammonia, um, which is a huge contributor to um, air pollution. Um, ammonia is this sort of pungent irritant gas that comes from livestock farms, mostly manure, um, and combines with other chemicals in the air to form deadly particulates. Um, so again, these have largely been ignored by the government. And some people argue that to some extent, um, the wood burning argument is a bit of a distraction to dealing with this big ammonia issue. Right. And of course, that would then mean more regulations on farmers. And, and that's a whole nother area to be discussed on the eco chamber in the future, no doubt. So on to our second story. And it's of a father and son duo who are found guilty of laundering 22 peregrine falcons. Yes, laundering falcons. Now, I didn't know this sort of thing still happened. But Shosha, does it? Yes, unfortunately it does. The sale of peregrine falcons is a big business in the Middle East for racing. So we know that between 2007 and 2022, there was a 4,500% increase in export permits for UK peregrines. Um, and that's according to Police Scotland. Jose has been shaking his head the whole time whilst we've been talking. You're not not a fan. Well, I am a fan of peregrine falcons. Right. Just, just now I, I was completely blissfully unaware that this was big business, that this was happening at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, on that point then, why is that, Shosha? Uh, well, wild birds, particularly from Scotland, are considered stronger, fiercer and faster, uh, which sounds like some sort of tagline from a movie, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yes, under legislation, selling captive bred peregrine falcons is legal, um, but possessing or selling wild birds is unlawful. Right. So this father and son duo specifically were involved in selling wild peregrines, were they? Yes. So alongside their conviction at Deborah Sheriff Court, um, the court heard that between 2019 and 2020, Timothy and Lewis Hall were involved in the sale of 15 peregrine falcons. Um, so they made a total of £41,000 roughly from doing that. Mm, big business. Um, big business. And the police found through looking um, through Lewis Hall's phone data that showed a drone linked his phone had flown 20 separate flights directly over several known peregrine nests in order to actually capture these eggs. So quite a big operation. It's like very well planned. It's like heist, isn't it? It's, it's a heist. It's an egg heist. Um and when officers later investigated two of the nesting sites, they discovered they'd been disturbed and a number of eggs were missing. So that's sort of the police work they did behind yeah. it. Um, and these chicks were found in Timothy Hall's home, as well as a number of other birds at play. So then I do have a question, you know, just to play devil's advocate, how can you tell the difference between sort of, you know, a domestic chick and a wild peregrine chick? Apparently, it is quite difficult. Um, so they actually use DNA testing. Um, in this case, 
the testing revealed that the chicks had not been bred in captivity. Um, so two of them were linked to a wild adult peregrine falcon um, known to nest in the south of Scotland. Okay, and I guess that is also evidence for the court then. So how did it sentence this father and son egg-thieving duo, Jose? Yeah, I mean, I keep, as you say, finding myself shaking my head. It's just what a tale. And, and as, as you say, it does at least end with punishment of a sort. Uh, starting with Timothy Hall, the father. So he pled guilty to acquiring for commercial purposes, keeping for sale and selling 15 wild peregrine falcon chicks between 2019 and 2020. And in addition to... Uh, being in possession of a further seven wild peregrine falcon chicks on 18th of May 2021. That was an all. He also admitted to failing to provide for the needs of nine other birds of prey by, and this was the charge, not providing a clean or adequate living environment and not providing sufficient uh, clean water for them. And so for all these uh, charge uh, sheet, Timothy Hall, the father, again, he was ordered to carry out 120 hours of unpaid work over a year and a half, period of 18 months. And then as for the son, Lewis Hall, well, it was a similar story. He pled guilty to, again, acquiring for commercial purposes, keeping for sale, selling wild peregrine, falcon chicks between 2020 and 2021, which in his case, so this included 13 of the 22. The chicks sold in 2020 and the seven chicks found in May 2021. That's how they saw the responsibility spread between father and son. And having pled guilty to all this, Lewis Hall, he was ordered to carry out 150 hours of unpaid work over a period of 15 months. So in total, they received about 350 hours then of community service. I'm no expert in these sorts of crimes, but it doesn't sound like a lot to me, Shosha. No, and the RSPB also didn't think so. So Ian Baffo, who leads on wildlife and environmental crime for the Crown Office and Curator Fiscal Service, um, said the sale of peregrine falcons has become an extremely lucrative business. And Timothy and Lewis Hall took advantage of that for their own financial gain and to the detriment of the wild peregrine falcon population in the south of Scotland. He also said that these illegal activities had the potential to have a devastating impact on the entire population of nesting peregrine falcons in that part of the country. So like a huge impact of this crime, huge scale, um, and I guess some would argue not enough of a punishment. On to our final news story this week, and it's a recap on the European environmental laws that we've lost and are expecting to lose in the future. This year, the government has 76 EU laws in its sights that will be scrapped this year. Now, we're not going to go through all 70 uh, end subscribers. You can read our listicle if you want to really show off in front of your friends <laughs> down the pub. Uh, but Jose, can you start by telling us how the government is doing all this? Well, it's simple enough. They have the power to do so. It's all to do. It all comes back to that retained EU law act, which is usually known in policy circles by its REUL acronym. And the way that EU law is being amalgamated into UK statute books post-Brexit is, when you think of it, a pretty far-reaching power that the government has. And so recently we found out just how much they've been making use of it. And we got a snapshot of that, just courtesy of a report from the Department for Business and Trade. Okay, so what were some of those findings then? Yeah, so the report covered a period from June last year, which is when the Real Act again royal assent to December last year. The conclusion was that over those months, more than 2,000 real instruments uh, have already been either repealed or reformed. And there is a lot, it's not just about that number, there is a lot among those 2,000 laws that matters. 
So for instance, you've got the scrapping of regulations 9 and 10, or what's called the National Emission Ceiling uh, Regulation, which was derived from, uh, once derived from EU law. These are two really key equality provisions until now. They require the Environment Secretary to draw up and consult on what's called a National Air Pollution Control Program. But now they are no more. They don't exist. They don't apply. And if you go back and you listen to podcast episode 70, you can find out why they were so crucial and their scrapping so controversial. So, yeah, I mean, importantly, your stuff is already being asked from UK statute books and there'll be more. You mentioned there's 76 others the government wants to do away with in 2024. And when you look in there, you find laws on the delisting of invasive species, the delisting of veterinary uh, medicines, and as well as the removal of what they, be, what they call redundant reuse legislation, 73 pieces away. Okay, so let, so on the redundant then, it does sound like a lot, but there, there may be duplication in there. Does it mean that they're ready to take a hiatus, Shosha? No. In fact, according to the Department of Business and Trade, um, this is just the beginning. Um, so the repeal or reform of these 2000 instruments is only the beginning. Um, the report states that in 2024, the government intends to revoke or reform a further 500 pieces of rule. And beyond that, um, it's on track to repeal or reform more than half of the entire stock um, by June 2026. So I think the government's aim is to put in place smarter regulation objectives. That's how they describe it. Um, and it believes that this program will ensure that these regulations are only used where necessary, are implemented well, and are used proportionately and are future-proof. So that's sort of the um, modus operandi given in the trade report. So I guess then that the four nations are all on board with this? Not at all, actually. Um, in the response to the report, the Council General for Wales and Minister for the Constitution highlighted that the Senate actually withheld consent for the rule bill and added it was not convinced um, of the necessity, desirability and wisdom of embarking on significant change to the body of what is now a simulated law at this time and more generally. So that's a quote um from that. The report itself states that Wales will make use of the Rural Act powers in a proportionate and judicious manner and will not rush to change the law simply because they can. Who would accuse the government of lacking wisdom, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Not us. It's time now for our moment of the week and I'm taking the spotlight yet again because... Toxic, our new film on PFAS is out. Toxic, Britain's forever polluted rivers and seas, which is showcasing the dangers that we are in, folks. It's a 25-minute short. Subscribers, you can just log on to our website as normal um, and view it. Um, If you're not an end subscriber, listeners, you can register. It takes a few seconds, really, and you can watch it. Um, We did it with Watershed Investigations, um, fantastic journalism. And yeah, I really think um, already it's received a really good reception. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope you guys enjoy it if you're listening. Uh, do you guys like it? We definitely did. We had our screening on Monday and it was great to sort of see how people from different parts of the business who might not be working in environmental policy also reacted to the news. I mean, it is interesting because I think, you know, I've been looking at this film for so long now in the edit and I'm so up close to it. You can kind of forget. And I, I watched it uh, again with my wife and kind of, you know, watching it with a with a perspective of someone who's not, you know, in the in the minutiae of environmental policy, 
it kind of gives you a whole fresh perspective of just the dangers of this PFAS and and just just how present and real and how important it is to people who maybe for the first time have just heard this word. Mm. You know, it's it is it is such an important subject. And yeah, um, I really hope folks endsreport.com forward slash toxic go take a look. Sorry to disturb your podcast. I'm John Gagan, Deputy Editor of Planning, the leading title for those who manage and navigate the planning system. Anyone interested in the latest news about town planning should check out Room 106, our weekly podcast, where we round up the latest news from the sector and take a closer look at the biggest planning stories. This might be the government's latest big policy announcement, a significant High Court judgment, or the progress of a planning bill through Parliament. So check out Room 106 wherever you get your podcasts. On to our deep dive now, and last week I caught up with Martin Baxter, the Deputy CEO at the Institute of Environment and Assessment, IEMA. Martin also heads the UK delegation to the International Organisation for Standardisation, ISO, on Environmental Management, and chairs the ISO Environmental Management Systems Committee, of which there's about 100 countries. So he's a busy guy. Uh, We spoke about the pitfalls to avoid when entering the environmental sector, why diversity matters in green spaces, green washing, EIAs, and even what a Labour government might mean for environmentalists. So let's jump in. So can we talk about skill sets and learning in the environmental sector? Where do you think it's most lacking? Well, big question, because I think... There is a lack of skills, certainly within business and industry. Um, We have a massive transformation to go through as we move towards a net zero future, look to tackle the big sustainability challenges we face, whether that's in the water environment, whether it's the way in which we use materials, whether it's the way we design products and services. So clearly there's a need to bring everybody up to speed and give people the skills and capability to make those changes. So that's one thing. I think we also need to prepare future generations for the world of work and the world of work will change because we use a phrase, all jobs greener. So we see that all jobs need to be done in a greener way if we're going to make this transition and preparing people coming into work to be able to play that role also means we need to start to think about the education system. So yeah, that pretty much encompasses everybody. Do you, do you think, though, that in your experience speaking to your members, do you think they're being heard or are they the sustainability small team in the corner that has to say their bit uh, and then that's kind of enough for, for the CEOs? Um, no, I think what we're seeing now is organisations being encouraged, pressurised by you know significant entities, for example, financial services sector, to start to put this right at the centre of their strategy. And therefore, the sustainability team are um, being brought into those conversations. Um, What we see, and we have a number of corporate organisations who are also members within IEMA, and what they're doing is developing what we call workforce transition plans to come together with their sustainability plans. Because you you are starting to see some organisations maybe struggle with setting a long-term target, maybe a science-based target, and then thinking, we don't know how to deliver this. And therefore, they get accused of greenwashing because they're making a commitment that they can't keep. So how do you build up the skills and capability and capacity to make that transition and to take the whole organisation through with you? So we have this one-hand sustainability professionals that we are helping to upskill. 
And then we're working across organizations on workforce transformation plans to help them to embed this in different parts of the organization. And we've got you know, a range of organizations who are on that journey. Um, so that's really exciting. And then going back to younger people. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm really keen because we do have a lot of, say, university listeners. Yeah. I'm really keen to get your advice. What advice would you give them, you know, entering this space? Um, I think when we speak to employers, what they're really keen to see is people, yes, they want people who are passionate about sustainability and have got that understanding. What they're really also looking for is, are you ready for the world of work? And how can you fit into an organization and have some of the broad, what, what we sometimes call softer skills, which is not the greatest term, but that ability to communicate with other people, to meet deadlines to be able to work in partnership and work in teams and just get things done and be really reliable. Um, and anything you can do that showcases that is, I think, really important for an employer because they think that you're kind of, you have employability and then we want to employ you in a sustainability role. What we've done is we've taken that skills map and we've worked with Pearson at Excel on an extended project qualification for um, people at sixth form, basically. So people who are doing A-levels can now study an EPQ with a focus on um, climate change or sustainability and start to showcase how they're developing those skills. And through that, then they can get recognition when they maybe, if they apply to go to university, we can start to see them potentially having uh, contextualized, contextualized offers. So maybe grade deflation for um, people who've done really well in that EPQ um, so you get two offers, basically, um, one which is maybe two grades lower if you've done really well in the EPQ because it's worth about half an A-level. Um, so I think that's really exciting, and that's starting to be rolled out um, from September this year. So I think you know we're really encouraged by that. And then also we're seeing more people going into apprenticeships. The really interesting thing about apprenticeship is that you can sign up and get into um, an organisation. So you have a job and you are paid the minimum wage. So that's roughly eight, uh, 19 and a half thousand pounds. You'll go to university for on average one day a week. So it could be in blocks, it could be in day release. And you will, at the end of that process, come out with uh, an apprenticeship and also a fully recognized degree and no student debt and have really effective and valuable um, skills and, uh, and experience. I, I do wonder though, because particularly in sort of the ecological space, I do read a lot of testimonies about, you know, seasonal employment for some very junior ecologists and this lack of pay. So it sounds good if you're an apprentice at that kind of college age, maybe school, but then when you're sort of at, uh, certainly with, with, with some sort of juniors in their 20s, I'm sort of reading this, the, the tea leaves, like the, there is this kind of expectation to do more for less. Is that is that how you see it? Or do you think do you think that could be addressed? I think it's, fair, it's a fair comment on ecologists because clearly, you know, there are certain times of the year when you need to be out doing surveys and then you spend quite a lot of the winter writing up your reports. Um, I think in broader aspects of sustainability, we don't see that. So if you're going into an organization, you know, quite a lot of the infrastructure companies are running apprenticeships and 
some of the consultancies as well because they're really struggling to recruit enough people um, with the skills and experience that they they need. So they're investing in uh, apprentices to be able to fill that gap. And those will be multidisciplinary people. So they will have over the the, the duration of their apprenticeship some experience of could be air quality, it could be ecology, it could be water quality, it could be project management, working on EIAs, and then they'll start to specialise potentially. And we see those people having a really you know, strong future because the amount of infrastructure that we need to deliver on the big transitions mean that there's going to be a lot of work to kind of assess and evaluate and steer those projects to more sustainable outcomes and therefore their skills are in demand at the moment and will continue to be in the future. And I don't see the demand falling off or the type of work being so constrained that they have periods where they're not really needed. Right. Yeah, no, and I suppose that that conversation between environmental measures coming in place and, you know, money to be made out of this doesn't often get spoken about. I know, um it's often seen as a hindrance to things, to profit rather than than a benefit. Um, but there there are problems in the sustainability and environmental sector, and particularly around diversity and employment. Um, I know IEM has done some work around that. I mean, how do you address because because it is often seen that you know these green spaces are often white spaces. How how do you how do you address that? Or how are you addressing that at IEM? So. It, it's something that's incredibly important to us and our chief exec, Sarah Mukherjee, um, leads what we set up as the Diverse Sustainability Initiative to help to address this. And I think there are a number of factors. So one is um, looking across the profession as a whole, and that's beyond just IEMA because there are you know, other professional bodies, there are people working in NGOs, etc. Um, then there is a lack of diversity. When we look in our own membership at uh, UK members, um, we see for, for example, in the under 40s age group, so anybody generally from the age 18 up to 40, we have high levels of uh, racial diversity. So non-white British heritage people, um, about 15, 16% in our membership in those age groups. So that's very different than maybe some of the research indicated. Um, but we're also conscious that a straight numbers game, to put it crudely, doesn't really address the challenges that people face and the barriers that they have and they experience and they continue to experience. I think the challenge is that the members of IMO are working in all sectors of the economy. Sometimes they can be only the only person working on sustainability in their organisation. Sometimes they can be part of a team of 200. Um, and it's much easier to tackle as a collective from a professional, a sustainability profession, um, the way in which professionals relate to each other than it is maybe to go into all parts of society to make that change. So we are working with, uh, we have a people of colour network, we have an LGBTQ plus network. We also have a um, looking at a neural diversity kind of network as well, simply because um, there are different forms of challenge and discrimination that people face, and and we want to support you know a wide group of people. Um, and, and working with them to identify how we can support them is really important. Um, and the other one is um, which 
really interesting. We don't have enough information on it, but 5% of our members in the UK said that they live with a disability. Which isn't often spoke about. Which isn't often spoke about. And trying to work out, uh, trying to get some more data and information to show what that might be, because potentially that's really positive in terms of the profession. So we want to enable everybody to be able to uh, fulfill their potential and be part of a profession which is all about creating opportunities for people in the future. I think that's really important for us. Um, And also then to ensure that we're able to support them so that everything that we provide and that the profession does is um, aware of you know, how we can do that in the most effective way. So there's an awful lot happening in this whole space um, and it's not going to be fixed overnight. So we're aware of that. So we are committed, obviously, for the long term in trying to address these significant challenges. I mean, some of the challenges that they will need to face in the future and, and now, you know, when we talk about environmental policy, there is a raft of measures that have come in place through new acts. I, I would like to talk to you about um, one in particular, which is biodiversity net gain. So for, for, for those listeners who, are, who aren't aware, this is a new policy to encourage, no, to force developers in England to create a 10% uplift in nature value, essentially post-development. But we do know that there is um, a lack of ecological expertise in councils. So from the data that ENDS has gathered, um, we know that it's roughly one in four, one in three councils have access to um, an ecological expert based on chartered ecological status. But even then, they might not necessarily be full time. With that said, are you worried about net gain coming down the line? I think it's a really important question. And firstly, yes, we do see, and it's not just in biodiversity net gain, the competence and capability in statutory bodies to be able to do the work that needs to be done is lacking. So I think we see that in you know the development consent process more broadly. Um, so we talk about natural England here. It could be natural England. It can be in local authorities dealing with you know applications that require a full environmental impact assessment. Right. Um, Biodiversity net gain is going to be really important and then nature recovery strategies within that context are going to be important in being able to demonstrate over a period of time that in the whole of their area, biodiversity is being enhanced. And it was interesting when you know that provision was introduced to the Environment Act, there's been a reminder from the Office for Environmental Protection, as I kind of um, super regulator, as I like to call them, um, that there is a duty there on local authorities, and they're going to have to fulfil that. And so I think having the expertise to understand, okay, well, how in our authority area are we going to deliver an enhancement of biodiversity? What's the contribution that biodiversity net gain could make? If we said 10% and we look at the level of development in our area, but we also look at nature decline, are we going to get to where we need to be? how do we start to partner with other decision makers in our area, in particular in the way in which land is used, and who is there who can support us in this kind of move forward? Um, and whether that is Natural England, whether it's the Environment Agency, whether it's other major landholders that 
local authorities can go into partnership with. I think there's a more strategic approach that's needed that requires people with skills and capability. I mean, but it, I mean, sorry to interrupt you. It does sound like you say the tools sound great, but do you have do do you think right now, particularly local planning authorities, where where you know budgets are tight, they have the capabilities to deliver these tools, or you know, or are we just going to see this policy, you know, go down the line without any action? Well, I don't think local authorities have all the skills that they need to be able to do that. So that's a kind of very simple answer. I think what we are seeing, though, is developers recognising that they have to be able to demonstrate this at the point of application. So quite a lot of the developers that we work with, you know, they've been watching this. Um, They've contributed to some of the guidance that IMA developed in the mid-teens, 20-teens. Is that how we describe it? We can now. We can do now. I've invented a new phrase. Um, But we worked, you know, from... um, Early in 2012, I think it was, on developing guidance and then a hierarchy on biodiversity net gain and an approach. So we joined with um, the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management, CIM, and CIRIA, the Construction Industry Research Association, in order to start to move biodiversity net gain forward as a, if you like, a voluntary initiative and formalise that and get experience. And so we are seeing that developers have started to get that understanding. Um, Not all developers will have that, of course. Um, And, you know, our members are very well aware of what the expectations are. I think the key thing is going to be is not just about do they understand what biodiversity net gain looks like at the point of application. The crucial thing comes to do we have the capacity and skills and capability for enforcement and ensuring that commitments that are entered into are met. And that's a really big concern that we have because there are lots of examples where we have no idea whether the mitigation measures and biodiversity net gain in a way is a, although it's an enhancement, it's a form of mitigation to all the biodiversity loss that we've been experiencing. Are they actually... Firstly, are they implemented? And secondly, when they are implemented, are they as effective as we expect them to be in terms of mitigating environmental harm? So when it comes to things like environmental impact assessment, one of the things we've been really clear about is that post-project monitoring and enforcement and evaluation and closing the information loop back into what does that mean for the next type of development that is consented in this particular area or in this particular sector we have to we have to develop a learning mechanism and those aren't in place at the moment you mentioned eias i wanted to ask you about you know the government's uh, replacement of existing eias and strategic environmental assessment regimes with this eors this new environmental outcome reports which all being channeled through the um leveling up and regeneration act what are you instructing your members to do does it change the game or is it just a different name? We have we have some significant concerns about the framing of environmental outcome reports in the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act. So firstly, we don't we're not convinced that it actually solves the problem. And, and the problem being they're too long, they're too cumbersome, no one reads them. Is that um I think I, I think we need to go a little bit deeper than that. So 
Um, and this comes back to this capacity in local authorities so and, and statutory consultees. So on the one hand, um, what you find, this is a real generalization, but what you what you often find is that if you have people with a lack of experience, they always want more and more information in order to make a decision. And so when it comes to the screening and scoping stages of a new development, say, okay, well, what needs to be assessed? The easiest thing to say is everything. The more experienced you are, the more you can say you don't need to assess this because it's not a material consideration and it's not going to have a significant impact in this particular context for this particular development type. So one aspect is how do you improve the quality and the competence of people who are doing screening and scoping? Because we should be scoping things out of assessment, not scoping everything in. Secondly, you need people who are really good at public participation and engagement, because that's a really important part of the environmental assessment process. Thirdly, I think you also need to have a really good understanding of how you can build this post-project monitoring and evaluation into both the end of the process, but also to inform future assessments. So what we see is that lots of information is collected um, pre-application. There might be some monitoring post-application, but they never really sees the light of day subsequently, and it's not used to provide that grounding for the next set of assessments, either in a particular place or a particular sector. So I think that there's a real opportunity to enhance the way in which we use data to develop more effective monitoring regimes that inform evaluation post-consent, which then lead us to be more effective in how we um, bring environmental information into decision-making going forward. So, so, so EOS are just a sticking plaster? Well, there, there are other concerns that we have with EOS. So one is that they constrain impact assessments beyond the topics that are already assessed. So it's not clear to us that um, the effects on cultural heritage, the effects on human health um, and health impact assessment are within there. So we are concerned about constraining assessments. Um, we're concerned that, and we're concerned that basically you won't actually end up with a more effective or inefficient regime because the skills and capability that are needed within the decision makers aren't there. Yeah, so by, just by so, not looking so, at something, it doesn't mean that um, it's going to make it any more speedy. Exactly. And the other point is that impact assessment is, right or wrongly, um, or the, the, the decision-making process on projects is adversarial. And if you have a major infrastructure project where you have um, significant investment, you've lined up the finance, you've done all the legal things that you are expecting to do, and... They say, right, we need, and as part of that, we need an EIA doing. The legal teams just say, assess everything. We don't want to risk a delay to a project because we've failed to do a, re a report or a survey that some somebody subsequently down the line says you should have done that. And it knocks back everything by 12 months. And suddenly the finance that was allocated to that project moves. So I think there's got to be a much deeper understanding and evidence-based to inform any changes to the regime. 
we think that you can improve the impact assessment regime far more effectively um, to drive efficiency um, without having to change the law. So at the moment, the regu regulations haven't been drafted to bring EO EORs into effect. Um, and we wait to see how they might be construed and if they come forward. So that's all under, you know, currently the Conservative government. I would like to ask you about Labour. And they are, you know, they're all guns blazing for um, new homes, building. Um, there's a question and query over Grey Belt, whatever that is from Sir Keir Starmer. Um, I'm just curious to get your take on where you think Labour might take us moving for if they were elected there's a big if but if they were elected do, do you see anything changing or do you think it's just going to be a business as usual for environmental professionals i think potentially there'll be more proactivity and it new development doesn't have to be totally destructive to the natural environment it's about good quality design it's about integrating environmental considerations right at the beginning of a process and working within the constraints that you have. I think one of the challenges that we see is that we have a whole set of national targets now on environment and we have an environmental improvement plan with interim targets which are set and our biggest concern at the moment is that there are the transmission measures that say how do you translate a national target on species abundance or on air quality into um, place-based decision-making isn't there. We called as the Environment Act was going through Parliament or the bill was going through Parliament, we called for a local environmental improvement plan. Oh, interesting. So each council would have their own so, EIP. So each council would have their own EIP, which was would basically kind of connect national priorities with on-the-ground delivery. And then the question for new development is, how do you contribute in terms of your development to supporting the delivery of this EIP at a local level? Now, then that becomes not just biodiversity net gain, but potentially other environmental enhancements that would be put into a particular area. And your impact assessment is there to evaluate the extent to which you are going to support the delivery or not. I think when you start to put developments in that context, then I think it becomes more, you know, this is an enabler of sustainable development as opposed to driving wedges between some aspects of community, some aspects of development. Um, so we think there's a governance gap at the moment um, that was recognised because, well, I think it was recognised because we highlighted it and we had lots of discussions about it, but we didn't get, um, in terms of our contribution to the Environment Act, that was the one thing that we we didn't get that we were really championing. And we see that the EORs, so going back to EORs, it says that there has to be regard to the EIP, but I don't see how you can consider as a national, you know, a nationally set e, um, environmental improvement plan for, you know, a housing development in uh Leyburn in in the Yorkshire Dales or somewhere like that. So that doesn't really make sense. So you have to have that transition and, and that translation of national policy and targets into local uh plans which then can inform decision making making and crucially, and this I think is really important, 
is that this would really help to put democracy into the environment because people have a real interest in what happens in their local areas. And I think you can start to bind people together to say, you know, how do we shape our places? And it's not just about development, it is about the natural environment as well. And people can, you know, help to work through some of the the best ways to optimise both. So I, I, I think if Labour were able to pick that up and run with it, I think they would find it ultimately a lot easier to get the right types of development in the right places. The big challenge is if you don't do that, then you end up with housing developments which are maybe antagonising kind of local people, which may always be the case, but they're in areas where we have water stress, maybe where areas that we don't have all the resources that are needed to support those places, and therefore they're never going to succeed. And that's it. We've come to the end of this week's Eco Chamber. My thanks to Jose Rojo, Shosha AD and Martin Baxter for coming on. We would love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, your views, your heresies, your criticisms. So you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, please take care of yourself.